Hey folks, like the show? Subscribe on iTunes, Podcast Addict, Podcast Player, Stitcher, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Then tell a friend. Word of mouth will help us upzone Seattle. Remember, our sponsor is always Horizon Books in Capitol Hill. Mention Upzones at the register for a 10% discount on anything in the store. Our sponsor is Horizon Books, and this is Upzones. You have to electors don't gain me. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. There'll be conspiracy theorists out there who try to convince you that it's shitty four to six months a year because there are clouds. Let me just tell you that I spent some time in Las Vegas over the past week where there are really not any clouds. My cab, or rather my Lyft driver, dropped me off on the wrong side of a very large, sprawled, suburban-style mall parking lot where I had a meeting on the other side of one mall parking lot. In the 20 minutes it took me to cross that sprawled, flat, suburban, everything that's wrong with America mall parking lot, I sweat through my socks and my drawers. Folks, I'm here to be vulnerable with you on the radio. It was one of the worst 20 minute stretches I've had all year. This does not happen in Seattle, which is why people want to live here. It's just, sometimes you gotta be happy for the, for the little things, man. You know? Just You just got to be aware of what we have here. What a great, 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 great place this is. And how it doesn't make you sweat through your socks just by crossing a parking lot. This week's guest, Mike Maddox. Really interesting cat. Um, actually, when I tell you he surprised me about three times during the interview with insane biographical details of his life, I, I, I don't exaggerate. He was great to talk to. Um, I do feel like we've probably had a good mix of civic officials, but we've never had a city staffer, city council staffer on. So he was pretty fun to talk to. He also does not make you sweat through your socks in 20 minutes. It takes more like 30 to 40 for him. So just be ready. Michael Maddox. So load it with ums and ahs. Yeah, so then I have to sit there and cut for like 10 hours. Part of the reason I wanted to have you on is because uh, several guests have said, get him on uh, from a policy perspective. But I do... They're all wrong. You don't want to just jump into policy because it leads to sort of boring half-hour segments. You want to just talk about life and... Isn't that the most important thing? (laughs) No. What is there outside of policy? (laughs) There's, there's... uh, I joke, I used to do policy for fun. There's, And now I get paid to do it. (laughs) Right. And now I don't do 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 it for fun fun? anymore. You're going to have to start drinking or something. Well, I've always done that. What's your favorite bar in I just realized there's no beer here. uh, What's your favorite bar? Oh, East Lake Zoo Tavern. I don't know this place. Hands down. It's in East Lake. It's my neighborhood. It's cash only. It's been there for 37 years now. It's just this divey bar with, you know, good beer, treat pool, uh, ski ball, and it's like a neighborhood joint where people just go. I'll in. have to head out there sometime. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. 
And you live in that area? Yeah. East Lake area? Yeah. So it's like a nice five-minute walk gotcha. or eight-minute stumble. Right. Uh, depending on which Five minutes there, eight minutes home. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Have you lived... How long have you lived in Seattle? Uh, this time around, uh, I moved back to the city in 2005. I was actually born at Group Health up on Capitol Hill. That's where I live. Yeah. Not in the hospital. I was say, you live in Group Health. <laughs> it's fascinating. Right around the corner. Yeah. 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 Which is now Kaiser, but... It's the same. Well, I love how when we're looking at the rates in the city in the state of Washington, they're talking about an average 19% increase in the health insurance rates for private market and on the exchange. But when you look closer at it, that's because the Kaiser plan is going up by 29%. And so oh. Kaiser came in, bought out Group Health, and now is jacking up the rates. But well, um, Kaiser buying it out is why I, I left Group Health. Why? Wait, I want to get to that from here. But why? Why wouldn't? The market just clear. Why wouldn't people just jump off Kaiser? I mean, it, I, my understanding, based on it, depends on what the rates are going to come out to be. But generally, Group Health has always been kind of middling to middle lower of the pack of the, of the more premium plans that oh, there were. Oh, I see. Uh, and so it's going to bring it more in line with us with some of the market. And then you have the folks who believe in in, in the concept that your health insurer and your uh, provider team should be the same because it takes away the incentive. Uh, for billing purposes or for doing things for the sake of making money on mm -hmm. the CPTs and the ICT-9s. And instead, when your doctors are salaried, it doesn't matter how many uh, things they bill out. Right. In theory, you get better care. And when I worked for Group Health for a period, that's what I saw when right. I was You there. reduce uh, a lot of the capital cost, too, if you get if you <laughs> give more streamlined care. Yeah. So so let's talk about that. So you, so you were at Group Health mm -hmm. for a couple of years. Yeah, I worked there in the early 2000s. Yeah. Well, God, I'm it, so old. <laughs> Well, yeah, I feel the same way, man. I, I think I was talking to one of my guests, uh, Brady Walkinshaw. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know, you I know mean, Brady. He, we're both in our kind of like mid-30s, and <laughs> I was like, I got to do something, and I started a podcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he's like, I got to do something. I'll become an elected official and then become a CEO of the company. And I was like, thanks, asshole. Like, making me feel great about my life. Oh, it's, and it's all the pieces, right? Like, that's, I think, no... Elected official is all powerful. No CEO is all powerful. It yeah. takes all of the, of the different components. That's, That's something right. I think we're seeing a lot right now in public policy in the city, is that all the components create better outcomes for the city, and yeah. which means better outcomes for community. So, yeah, when you were, at, I mean, what, what brought you into into healthcare? Oh, I right got out of yeah. So right out of high school, I actually worked for Planned Parenthood for a year and a half, working oh. with high risk and homeless youth, getting them connected with the housing and services. And then realized that I needed to pay rent, and <laughs> yeah. that kind of work was not going to do that. So uh, went and got a license to draw blood, mm -hmm. and went to work at the lab at uh, Group Health for a few years. Ended up on the bargaining committee for my union. Um, that was a lot of fun. So you, it sounds like you've been doing this agitating thing for a long time. I don't consider it agitating per se, <laughs> but no, I mean, I think one of my favorite experiences of that was during one of the negotiation sessions, somebody brought in a boatload of Krispy Kreme donuts. And uh, at the time, um, management was complaining about how healthcare workers utilize healthcare plans more than non-healthcare workers. The big fight was over whether or not we would have premium share with the health insurance plan that we were receiving. And so throughout, I just kept on getting up and getting another donut, getting another donut. And then Nancy Dombrowski, who was uh, the lead negotiator for the cooperative, uh, like just stopped and like looked at me. She's like, what are you doing? Like, oh, well, you're saying that you overutilized a plan, so I'm trying to give myself diabetes so I can live up to your stereotype. Uh, and we got along great after that. Like, I would just flip shit at her during the entire negotiating session. We would fight during, uh, yeah. like, just almost yelling at each other across the table. 
and then go have a cigarette with each other afterwards. Right. So right. it was a, it was a, it was a it was a really great experience and one of those opportunities to really see how you can negotiate something in a in a, in a heated way without being a jerk about it. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so I mean that then you do that long enough, you go oh, I, sh- I should be I should be in politics. I mean, uh, well, yeah, because I'd already been volunteering stuff by that point, right? Okay, so in okay. the 90s, uh, when I was a high schooler, uh, city of Marysville, so I grew up in Marysville, Snohomish County, uh, city of Marysville was trying to implement a curfew for teenagers, and it was so restrictive uh, that it was just dumb. And a lot of what, us... What, where did that come from? I don't know much about that. Oh, what? folks in the in the downtown area, some of the small businesses were complaining about graffiti, kids out at night, in the parks, blah, blah, blah. We don't, we don't like the teenagers because teenagers yeah. are scary. Right. And a lot of us uh, younger folk, teenagers, did not like the concept of it because it would have been anybody under the age of 18, outdoors after 10 p.m., would have been some sort of infraction or criminal thing. And we didn't, we didn't like that. So we organized and fought back. But instead of doing the whole don't do this, don't do this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we went a step further and said, you know, A, you're going to disallow people to participate in after-school activities that run late or church activities that run yeah, late. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at the same time, um, this is a series uh, that we're seeing across the country in the region where we're telling young people no all the time, but when are we going to start saying yes to something? And mm-hmm. so we started lobbying heavily to not only not implement the curfew, but also... Um, focus some funding through the parks department or some other department into getting a skate park in the city of Seattle mm-hmm. or in the city of uh, Marysville. God, I've like, been here for so long. And, just like an, uh, a proactive Yeah, so uh, not just policy. no, but here's something you could say yes on. Um, ultimately, it. they passed a curfew that anybody under the age of 16 had to be indoors after 10 p.m. unless they were traveling from um, an event or a, fr- or a friend's house or something. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it was so many loopholes, it was unenforceable. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they moved forward with putting in together the task force, and we got a skate park. That's amazing. So there must have been so many, like, 55-year-old white dudes who just fucking hated you. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't paying, you know. Uh, you just had your mission. I've been a teenager. Enough. I mean, you've been a teenager before, right? Yeah, like, well, yes, you I don't, have. You don't fact. give a shit what's going on around <laughs> you, what people think. And so that wasn't necessarily something we were too concerned about. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so I don't remember that. I do remember we had some adults who were on our side. That's great. Uh, and so, you know, I think it was a really positive meeting. And we were able to come in in a respectful way to the Marysville City Council, present our case, and it, was, and it worked. You know, it's funny. I should warn you, I'm not one of those liberals that, like, fetishizes youth. I think people have a lot to learn. I, I don't think mm-hmm. you stop at 18, right? I think I don't think you stop until you die if you're living right. So I don't fetishize youth, but but I will say that that youth has a lot of good ideas, mm-hmm. and they're 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 not constrained by everything experience teaches you, is everything experience teaches mm-hmm. you, and doesn't teach you what it doesn't. So young people are coming at it with fresh eyes, and I find actually that a lot of nineteen year olds do have passion and great ideas, but they don't know where the hell to put it. Mm-hmm. And I'm just it's interesting that you guys actually were able to organize and, you know, kind of. Was there somebody who said, hey, you should do this? You should go to this meeting? I don't remember um, how that happened. I mean, all I know is I got roped into it and worked to help um, with the organization on the messaging component of it, on how we talk about it in Mm -hmm. a way that was going to be, you know, again, be respectful. Because it's it's the idea that adults hate it when teenagers tell them what to do. Right. Uh, And so, you know, what's the the goal here to go in and complain about something or is the goal to go in and do something to be successful? Right. And we we went that route and we and essentially won, right? And then didn't throw a hissy fit over that something was passed. Instead, highlighted that what was passed is much less restrictive loopholes. Uh, we got everything essentially that we wanted, and more importantly, we got that proactive thing on having the parks department um, right. look at things. Right. So it wasn't only focusing on very young children, 
children and seniors at the senior center, but also getting that gap that's on um, that Well, gap is that, that why you went into the Planned Parenthood stuff? Did you, did you just kind of catch up? No, that, there, it, there's a lot of rando things that came up to that, right? Okay. And so, so I did that and then volunteered some campaigns like Jerry Costa when she ran for state senate in the 38th because choice uh, has always been a big issue for me as well, ensuring that uh, reproductive choice uh, is, is a thing because nothing else matters if we don't have that. Uh, and then for a period of time in the 90s, I actually uh, lived in a homeless shelter because I uh, got kicked out of my house. Uh, and d- during that time, I spent a lot of time at this drop-in center mm. uh, that Planned Parenthood ran. And then eventually it was reconciled to my family. It was great, good stuff. And it was at Cocoon House is where I was, which is a fantastic organization. Uh, the former ED is now the mayor of Everett, which oh, is phenomenal. Okay. Interesting. Um, and she won last year when you had one candidate who was being supported by folks who were trying to demonize homelessness, and she wouldn't play that game. Mm-hmm. And she, I mean, she barely won, but she won. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, having that experience of seeing the support that I got from the Stroppen Center, from Adrian Anderson, who was the person who was running it, uh, that got me interested in um, volunteering for it after I was more stable in my, in my housing. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I went on to work for it as an assistant and working with uh, young folks. On, like I said, to connect them with uh, STD testing uh, through Planned Parenthood or through the health department, connecting them with Cocoon House, connecting them with DSHS to get uh, medical needs, uh, um, health care coverage, whatnot, and also being a safe place for young folks to go who needed respite from their parents. I mean, the kids mm-hmm. that we were seeing were high-risk and homeless youth, kids who were being beat up by the parents. Right, abusive situations uh, or whatever. Yeah, and they yeah. just need somewhere to go. Well, so you said you were put out, your dad, your, something with your, your parents just weren't... Uh... Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I came out as bisexual, and that didn't go over very well with my uh, mom's husband. And okay. so that meant I had no place to live for um, that period, and yeah. then she kicked him out, and then eventually I was able to come back home at that Interesting. point. Interesting. You hear a lot of, you know, even Dan Savage really highlights his at-risk youth and it's mm-hmm. LGBT youth and that sort of thing. Is Why so much here? Why is it so prominent that you hear about um, LGBT homelessness here where it's not as prominent an issue, say, back east or... I mean, I, I think it's pretty prominent wherever you go, but when we see cities like San Francisco, Seattle, um, New York, places, uh, or Houston, places where young LGBTQ kids know that there's a place for them. So it's so a that's convergence when, when you look at Yeah, when you look at, you know, uh, generally people experiencing homelessness come from within the same zip code of where they're, or same area of where uh, uh, they last were living. And that's what we see at the uh, most recent point in time count and the surveys is that folks who are experiencing homelessness in the city of Seattle, uh, something like 70 some percent are from King County, 90 some percent are from the state of Washington. Uh, but when you look at homeless youth, you see, uh, I think more often that youth who are, uh, who are homeless because they're LGBTQ tend to gravitate toward population centers because that's where it's safest. Mm-hmm. Right, um, being uh, try being a trans kid in a conservative rural community, getting kicked out of your house, where are you going to go? Right, you're going to go to a place that you're going to that it's more likely that you're going to find that safety. Uh, and so I think that's why we see that more here. I mean, nationwide, I think the average is something like um, thirty or forty percent of homeless youth identifies LGBTQ, which is much higher than what we see in oh, the yeah. gen pop. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and a lot of that is just while we try to. Well we, well, we like to believe that we have m- made some great strides, which we have in the law, uh, that hasn't necessarily translated as well as often into actual life for young folks. Right. They're still struggling with the... With shitty parents. Shitty parents. <laughs> shitty parents. And so that's... I got you. That's... I didn't know uh, that 
of your background. So you're doing that. You, you know, you're working at Planned Parenthood. You decide, all right, it's time for a job. So you never even, uh, you didn't go to college. You didn't go off to college, right? Yeah, we don't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean. That, that's something we don't talk because of what I do for a living. We, yeah. we, we don't bring that up. But, yeah, no, I didn't. Uh, yeah. You know, I got to where I am the good old-fashioned way, failing up. Yeah. It's a terrible thing to say. But, yeah, I mean, because I've well, that's been going interested in, in That's going policy, in the show for right? sure. I'm actually just going to, the whole show is just going to be, uh, Michael Maddox, I got to where I am by failing, by up. failing up. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a mediocre white guy story. No, but I mean, you know, it's it, it it was. I've always been interested in politics and public policy, and so you know, I worked in healthcare, did that, and then was at Providence for a brief time, left there, and then ended up randomly at a law firm mm-hmm. uh, where yeah, I was, paralegal work, right? Uh, yeah, but I started as a my job was to scan documents and file them. And as I was doing, I was reading them and then, like, bringing up issues and, and asking questions. And so within a few months, I was uh, elevated, if you will, to legal assistant. And by the end of my tenure uh, at the first firm I worked, uh, I was the civil, the civil paralegal. I did all the civil cases. Mm-hmm. And we did um, some pretty monumental cases in the state of Washington around um, uh, child sex abuse in the foster care system. Uh, the biggest one that I'd worked on was a case called Begs v. Frigeau, where we actually appealed a bad ruling from a superior court judge in Spokane about whether or not failing to report suspected abuse rises to a civil cause of action mm-hmm. if there's an implied civil cause of action right, in there. Right. Uh, State Supreme Court agreed with us that there was, and we changed case law in the state of Washington as a result. That had never been decided before. And then a few years ago, the la- uh, two firms ago where I worked had a similar case, but with uh, adult protective services, a senior citizen, and the Court of Appeals said no. Frigeau doesn't apply here. State Supreme Court disagreed and unanimously extended that protection. So if you fail to report child abuse um, or what could be reasonably construed as uh, suspected child abuse Mm -hmm. and you're a medical provider Mm -hmm. um, or any mandatory reporter, all the way up to elder abuse, uh, which we have um, another set of laws for, then you are, from that point forward, civilly liable for damages that might occur as a result of those injuries. And so it's it's a... Ideally, what something would you say to, to someone, people to report. This is just coming into my head. I, I, what would you say to someone who says, well, that incentivizes crying wolf, if you will, or, or incentivizes reporting in cases where there may not be an infraction? Because I've heard that, you know, one way or the other. I mean, and that's why we have a system, is that people report and then it gets investigated. And mm-hmm. if there's nothing there, then there's nothing there. But what happens when people don't report... Oh, yeah, you so see the, the, the infractions Beggs, the all big, the time. The Beggs case was the big one. And so the Beggs v. Frigeau is also known as a daily owned case. Well, the big one... I and mean, so this one was a kid, a seven-year-old kid, was dehydrated to death. And the doctor never apparently noticed that he was being systematically abused and tortured by his foster mother. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what happens when you that's don't terrible. do anything. Uh, I mean, everyone knows about the Joe Paterno case, right? That's the national mm-hmm. case. That's yeah. sexual abuse where it, it gets to reporting. It gets to what did he know, right? That's that's yeah. the one that everyone yeah. knows. Yeah, I mean, that's the big the big national one. I, and my focus has always been on the state one, on ones here in Washington. And it's egregious what happens. Yeah. And then it turns into, well, what does the investigation look like? And mm-hmm. so we have another case out of uh, Carnation where uh, CPS did come out and investigate. And they did find that uh, this girl was being abused by her parents and then closed a file uh, a month later because they couldn't um, reach the, the bio dad. And then two years later, the girl broke out of the house, was emaciated, losing her teeth because they were starving her to death. And so the state got sued. Uh, my firm, hand, I mean, I worked on that case too. You, you so. know, as the city's changing, uh, you know, you almost might say there's like a citywide gentrification happening. Mm-hmm. And certainly the, the density, the size that, I mean, density is not changing fast enough, frankly, but the, the size and the, and the you know, just the, the metropolitan nature of the city is just 
mutating overnight, mm-hmm. right? How does that impact some of these, you know, these kids and these, and then on the other hand, the elders, like, how is that changing just their, their ecosystem of like what their life is like on a daily basis? Well, I think that's one of the things that I noticed in my time in my, in, at the law firms is that we didn't see cases out of big cities like that. And I think, uh, you know, for me, a part of it is because when you're in a city where you have density, where you have neighbors, people see each other. Oh. They don't see each other. They know something is wrong. You know, I umpired Little League in, uh, in the Central District for a while, and that was one of the things I thought was just really great was here's a community where everybody knew everybody else, and so everybody was paying attention to what everybody else was doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually better for kids. It's better for elders. Uh, you know, one of the concerns that I've heard and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I share about how we're growing as a city is there's, you know, not enough of those common spaces where people can have those interactions. And so I think there's a lot of new innovative ideas that are coming out about how we can still have the density that we need um, to ensure we have an adequate housing supply, but also building in those community components. Yeah. Uh, one yeah. of the biggest successes in Seattle with that is Plaza Roberto Maestas. Yeah. Oh, uh, what a great development that is. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a risk. Like, yeah. it, it, it took years to do, mm-hmm. and it only happened because El Centro de la Raza had site control uh, but the funding for it was a huge risk because the way that the funding works for affordable housing developments is that none of that money can go to the first floor. And then trying to get the private um, capital to make that happen for the micro businesses, for the childcare facility, is very difficult. Cause what do you mean none of that money can go to the first floor? That's news. Housing to- dollars cannot go to commercial. Period. They can't go to build oh, anything related to You don't that. mean literally the first story, but you just mean what's going in yeah. the first story. Oh, no, story. but <laughs> even getting the first story built, it's it's... It has to be if there's if it's using any money that's coming um, from for the housing components that are second um, and up, it has to be related mm. to supporting those. Wow. So you don't get all the electrical or anything else on the first floor from those dollars because that's a violation. You can't do that. That's right. not what the money is for. Mm. Um, but then we have the zoning requirement that says in places like that that you have to have first floor commercial. And so where you know how does that all work out? And how does that balance? And with a project like Plaza Roberto Maestas where you're adding in that community uh, plaza in the middle. That's not housing related. How do you pay for that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're adding in the lights. That's not the housing related. How do you pay for that? You're adding in the, the playground. That's not necessarily housing related. How right. do you pay for that? And so it's figuring out how all that was put together was, uh, you know, I've talked with folks about it. It was, it was a complicated, risky venture, and it paid off huge because oh, they yeah. did it. Yeah. And I think it's what we're seeing now with the Filipino Community Center project. And, uh, you know, in the future, I think we'll probably see it as well with the uh, Ethiopian Community Center uh, down on uh, Rainier is you're going to see more developments like that that are community led, which will have more community. But benefits. you create the density that you need. And you still get the housing to alleviate the, the housing the supply mm-hmm. pressure and, and create yeah. or the demand pressure, create more supply. Yeah. Yeah. And then you also and, and the other benefits there is you have folks who have different family types and different needs uh, mm-hmm. based on based on various cultural mm-hmm. uh, uh, norms that might be right. So for me and my kid, it's just the two of us. Mm-hmm. And so two bedroom apartment, that's fine. We're good to go. But you have some families that are much larger, have multi generation. Mm-hmm. Two bedrooms aren't working for those families, mm-hmm. and uh, while I think it's important that we have more two-bedroom apartments, and there are a lot of folks that uh, that that's going to work for that are families in the city of Seattle, there are families that that's not going to be uh, an avenue to success for those families, and that's where some of the biggest benefits come from having these collaborations with community groups that are more engaged with uh, communities than the city might be, because you get those better developments that have those community components to help build strong communities while having the micro businesses on the first floor. So, mm-hmm. so small businesses can thrive. Cause that's a that's huge right. component as well yeah. that we miss out. And a lot of the talk about gentrification is what's happening with the small business in the process. Yeah, of course. 
again, and now working for Councilmember Mosqueda. And what we, you know, what we look at is what are things that are working really, really, really well on affordable housing development in the city of Seattle. And when I was managing the housing levy campaign, Plaza Roberto Mestas was just opening up during that. And so I really dove into it. And then, you know, uh, Miguel Maestas like really gave me a lot of history on it. And, um, and then like folks at OH or Tracy Ratsliff, who's one of the central staffers, like I get to learn because I'm always, as you point out we're always learning. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, here's a project where our office, where I personally see something, it's like, this is so amazing. How can we do this everywhere? Mm -hmm. And so then it's like, well, what were the challenges that came along with it? How can we overcome those? And some things we can't overcome. Uh, you know, you, we can't spend housing money on first floor retail right, right. Uh, because that runs counter to the state constitution. And so then it turns into what other funds can we pull in from federal government grants or whatever. What's in the constitution? Uh, there's a rule in the constitution that state, you can't lend credit from the state for private gain. Fact, gotcha, right? You gotcha, can't use gotcha. any um, government dollars within the state or any um, municipality or county uh, for private gain. And so it makes it difficult to do those I things. See. So uh, a couple of years ago, you ran yourself. I did. What? I won't push you to that, man. I, I love. That was a mistake. Uh, no, you did. You, 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 <laughs> I'm kidding. I had a good you time. You were one of the finalists. I was. Um, look, man, I love politics. I, I would never submit myself or my loved ones to running for office. So, what? I mean, what pushes somebody to do that? I wish I had asked her, your your boss this when I had her on because I mean, you know, here we are. We're in the kind of prime of our. We're still young. I'm putting rabbit ears for the yeah. listeners. And you just you just jumped in, man. What what, what pushed you to that? Yeah, because I've been. <laughs> so 2014 was an interesting year in that the Park District campaign happened, and that was just a vicious campaign in Seattle. Um, it was one of the most negative campaigns I'd ever seen about funding parks. And and uh, where do you think that came from? I mean, I mean, a lot of it, you know, looking back on it, it was folks didn't trust the city to do this. Uh, and so what the park district did, did was it created a permanent funding source for parks by creating a park district where you can tax up to 75 cents per thousand dollars of assessed value. Um, and it's a neat mechanism that was created by the state uh, a long time ago. And we finally implemented it in Seattle. And a lot of the opposition was we can't trust a government with our money mm. and uh, we want to vote on levies all the time because they've always worked. The problem with that that we saw when I was on the legacy committee that put the proposal together was a we'd only ever had two levies before and they're both for capital they're both for building more things and b because of the one percent rule on taxation and because of how broken our tax system is we can't maintain what we have and especially not new things that come online at the level that uh that people of seattle deserve and so we saw a 270 million dollar backlog of major maintenance projects in the city of seattle oh geez and there's no plan to deal with that and so what we were looking at was how can we do this in a way that makes it so we're not going back to voters time and again with levies because levies are also a political document yeah. um you know you figure out where can we get the votes to pass this and on capital levies like that you're naming projects throughout the city yeah and so a lot of lower income neighborhoods get left out yeah and, and, this, and it's also i mean the, the idea of having to take a tax to the voters every single time it, it, it's sort of a double bait and switch isn't it yeah. i mean this idea that we're creating a legislature or a county mm -hmm. or city council to kind of manage the budget, but then to have to separately and individually say, no, but that tax we're going to mm -hmm. do. It, 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 it's, yeah. I mean, that's what Tim Iman wants. And that's right. how come he passed the 1% rule right. and, he, and he pushed all these things. And the leg after it was ruled unconstitutional, the legislature under Governor Gregoire went gung-ho and did it anyway. Uh, and, and it's frustrating because that you're exactly right. 
the purpose of a representative democracy is to make these decisions. And if you don't like it, within limitations. If you don't like it, kick them out. Yeah. And the previous limitation was a 6% year-over-year increase. And the city of Seattle wasn't hitting that 6%. At all. Yeah. Uh, but now we can't even keep up with inflation. And now we're in the position we're in. So how does that lead to you deciding to run? So so I wasn't going to run. And then, and then I ended up, you know, I was in District 4. Because originally I thought I was in District 3, and some people were encouraging me to run in District 3 if Councilmember Swamp ran for re-election. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's fool's errand. Um, <laughs> and then I realized I was in District 4, and so a lot of people were encouraging me, okay, run for District 4. We think you'd be better on a lot of urbanist issues than the incumbent, who was uh, Councilmember Gene Godden. And ultimately what I looked at it was I wanted the city to refocus its efforts around homelessness in a way that was going to get more people into permanent housing. Number one, hands down, that's what I thought we needed to do. At the time, the homelessness crisis wasn't nearly uh, what it is now. And, uh, you know, I met with, uh, with Councilmember Johnson, and he and I had different priorities. We agreed on a lot of things, but, you know, his area of expertise were definitely areas that weren't mine. And I feel like my areas of uh, priority and expertise weren't not his. And I didn't feel like he was somebody who was going to advocate the same way that I wanted to see that happen. Mm-hmm, and so... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we had talked and then eventually I decided I was going to go ahead and give it a go. Uh, it was, you know, via an email to Josh Fight, just said, I'm in, uh, and jumped in. And the goal was to... I don't know if that's, there might have just been a cart going overhead or the Russians are finally coming. I have no, I'm not sure what, but... God. Yeah. Somebody's, yeah. But, and so, uh, and, and then there was the tax component. And so, you know, I wanted to be there to be a voice for... A, the issue of ensuring that we're properly investing in homelessness services, mm-hmm. that we're getting folks uh, off the streets into permanent housing. And then B, take a look at our, our tax structure in the city right. of Seattle, because it's, it's a disaster, and see if we can be leaders. Fix it up a little uh, yeah. And, you know, I was looking at uh, an income tax, for instance, uh, but doing it in a different way than what the city did. My proposal would have been to do, uh, would there's this old case called Culleton v. Chase from 1933, which said that you can't, do progressive income taxes because income is property. So I just, I, my, my thought process was to say, you know, well, well, fuck it. Let's just call do a property tax on income uh, mm-hmm. and do a classification of property and then get sued and have the state Supreme Court say, you're crazy. Not a single Supreme Court in the country has said income is property since 1933, so we're going to overturn that law. So well, it's just weird. So wh- where's that? Like, you've, got a, you've got a mouthpiece now, right? Working for the council member. So what? Um, the city of Seattle last year passed an income tax, which is currently before the Supreme Court. But oh, that's but that's is that also based on the principle that you're talking about, where it's no, based on property? No, okay. and so I I'm, I can't speak to that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> okay. I guess there's that no falls need. outside the scope of yeah. what I'm allowed to talk about. <laughs> well, um, okay, fair enough. But anyway, so that's what I wanted to do, and so I jumped in, and you know, throughout the process, you know, I was slow to get traction because fundraising is the worst thing in the world, yeah. and I was not good at it, yeah. um, and doorbelling. Is something that is not my forte mm-hmm. um, because I like to talk policy with people. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, it means you spend an hour at one door. Mm-hmm. And my campaign team did not care for that. But you know, as it rolled on, ended up getting support from NARAL Pro Choice Washington, um, Sharon Lee from Lehigh, Speaker Frank Chop, uh, Representative Brady Walkinshaw. And so we started to see more support for the campaign. And then the stranger endorsement happened, which I think really changed that whole dynamic. Uh, and, and we got through in the primary. Councilmember uh, Godden came in third. And then it turned into a question of, you know, between me and Councilmember Johnson. Uh, and it was a great race. You know, not, uh, we, we, we genuinely like each other. And so we made, an, we made it a point. We talked to each other. We're not going to snipe at each other. We're not going to attack each other. We're going to focus a campaign on ideas. And, and that's what we did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we went to a, I think one of my favorite moments was we were in a debate over in Laurelhurst. 
and we were asked about single family zoning and uh, I was like well we, we of course should allow more housing types more parts of the city uh, including duplexes and triplexes because that's home ownership opportunities for smaller homes that means if you're a senior and you want to retire within your neighborhood or you want to downsize your house from a 3,000 square foot house maybe a thousand square foot home mm -hmm. you can do that mm -hmm. and still be in your neighborhood mm -hmm. and right now we can't do that because yeah. of the restrictive zoning and you know, and, and a bunch of senior citizens in the room, this was a, a, a senior citizen event, like started nodding along like, oh, that makes sense. Right. And so I think we were able to have a, a more adult conversation um, because we were both on the same page. Uh, and then even other components where you know, uh, uh, there are folks who are saying, you know, what are you going to do to wheel and deal um, for your district? And you know, I opened up my answer, with, you know, uh, I'm going to lose votes here, but nothing. Uh, District 4 has got a lot of good stuff, and we have a lack of investment in places like South Park mm -hmm. or Rainier Beach mm -hmm. or Delridge. And so, you know, we shouldn't be using districts as a means to uh, take away from other parts of the city, but to encourage more equity and highlight what's good so we can be a model for other neighborhoods and in investment. And Rob patted me on the shoulder and said, well, you're not going to lose any votes because I agree. Uh, and I think we've seen that uh, with him on the council. Right. That's great. Hey, you know, what do you have coming up? What's going on? What do you want people to know about? We're doing stuff. No, I, th I think, you know, one of the biggest things that we're, that our office is uh, focused on supporting is the accessory dwelling unit legislation. Right. You know, this is in the EIS right now. So by the time this runs, uh, it will have uh, the draft EIS will be completed because the comment period ends in June. And we'll be expecting the final, I think, in September. And I mean, here's a piece of legislation that Councilmember O'Brien has really just led on and has done amazing work on. And Susie Levy and his office, they've been amazing on this. And I think we're at a point now where we can take this and from the EIS, we've learned a lot about how uh, allowing more infill type development can actually be beneficial uh, to creating more affordable and healthier communities and then along with that I think there's a lot of appetite on the floor um, to look at programmatic components and so what are ways that we can help support uh, moderate and low-income homeowners uh, to Produce the uh, produce these types of units mm -hmm. on their property. Create wealth for themselves while creating affordable uh, an housing. opportunity for, yeah. for another. Yeah, and multi generational housing. What are the things that we can do with that? And so I think there's a lot of really exciting things in this. And then that's also going to give us an opportunity to you know take a, a bigger look. Um, I think next year around what does single family zoning mean? Should it be only detached houses, or can we look at um, a low density family zoning model mm -hmm. uh, like Portland has, where you can have quadplexes mm -hmm. where four p different families can own a piece uh, of, of, a, of a property. A larger lot. Uh, and that's coming in 2019. Uh, I think I'm, I'm hopeful that the council will have those conversations that's in 2019. Because I think that the timeline that we'll look, we're looking at is the final EIS will come out probably in September on the ADU legislation. Uh, it'll probably get appealed. Uh, and then, you know, the timeline from there is when the hearing examiner is done with it, that gives the council the opportunity to say, here it is, let's move the legislation and then let's take another look at what can we do with this uh, piece to ensure we have more housing types and options throughout the city. Uh, you know, by then, you know, we'll see how MHA goes through the um, through the hearing examiner process and what we can do with that. Because uh, I think that the the goal for that is August or September to uh, have that wrapped up for the citywide zoning changes, uh, which is you know, I mean it's. It's major and minor at the same time, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's it's relatively minor zoning changes throughout the city that are 
No, but I mean, it's this is how you're going to get the the growth. Relatively modest upzoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we don't call this podcast the single family zones podcast. What? Right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, this that's really encouraging. Hey, we we like to end every show with a segment that we call mm-hmm. "If you care about, you should." Fill in the blanks. I mean, if you care about homelessness and affordability, then you should be out advocating for more home opportunities, more housing types, more zoning changes to ensure that we have the affordability component as well as the legality to produce and preserve permanently affordable housing mm-hmm. for uh, homeless individuals throughout the city of Seattle. Awesome. Well, uh, when we throw this up on the post, uh, I hope you'll give our readers some ways they can do that. Oh, yeah. And I think there's a lot of ways. I mean, advocacy is one of the biggest ones. Uh, writing to your council members. We read every email, mm-hmm. uh, including the awful ones. We read every email. Uh, I think that's, <laughs> but I think that's important for yeah. folks to remember that you're, be, you're being heard and we need to hear folks. Mm-hmm. Like we know from elections that uh, the idea of zoning changes are popular. Councilmember Mosqueda ran on an unabashedly pro housing platform and took 60% of the vote. Mm-hmm. Um, Councilmember um, Gonzalez did that twice and took 85 and 75% of the vote, respectively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's clear where the voters are, but I think what we see a lot of and hear a lot of and had for years before was only people opposed to those changes, right. and now we're starting now to hear more people saying else. it, and it's important for council members to hear, and including after those votes happen, right. because if we hear all those thank yous after they happen, I think it improves morale for staff and the entire floor to continue doing that work. That's great. But if after we pass something and then people are just mad, the only, the only people that we hear from are the people who are mad about it kind of changes the morale a little bit and so i think there's um that's the one thing i would really impress upon people is to make sure let your council member know when you like what they did great because we like to hear it yeah that's great advice michael maddox thank you so much for being on the show thank you so much for having me we're gonna have to get everyone else in your office in there now too that was mike maddox currently a staffer on the seattle city council probably know him because he ran for office a few years back, back in 2014. Also the former campaign manager for Yes for Homes, longtime paralegal, longtime, uh, as he mentioned on the show, union negotiator. Check him out. Write him an email. Write him a positive email. He asked for it. Thanks to the Subcons for all the great music. Thanks to Anthony McPherson for the poetry sample. Thanks to Naboo for the sound. Thanks to Cascadia Underground for putting on the show. I am your host, Ian Martinez. My favorite.